Welcome to Science Radio, a space where we chat about culture, belief, wellness, and current events, all through the lens of faith. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Science Radio. My name's Jesse, and I'm joined today by the lovely Juliana. Hello, Juliana. Hello. Thank you for having me here. It is such a pleasure to have you here. Um, For those of you who are watching the video, this is an amazing new space that we have, which we're super excited about. And we thought, what better way to celebrate our brand new space and our brand new host? Like, you're you're helping us, and we're very very grateful. I don't want to preempt. If you love it so much, maybe you can step in full time, but we're not putting any pressure on you. Okay, I'll think about it. <laughs> um, we thought we'd celebrate by introducing one of our greatest guests ever, uh, Daniel Principe from Collective Shout. Welcome to the podcast, Daniel. Thank you so much. You've had some superb guests, so I don't know about that. I, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta deliver now. <laughs> gotta make this compelling and empowering for everyone listening along. Ah, oh, no pressure, man. I'm, I'm looking forward to our chat. Um, for those of us who are listening to the podcast, you may have heard of Collective Shout before, but for those people who are not aware of what um, it is and what it does, would you be able to give us a little bit of a, a background? Sure. Collective Shout is a movement against exploitation in all its forms. We campaign against the objectification of women and the sexualization of girls. And we do that through advocacy, through education and through campaigns. So we have campaigned against corporations, advertisers that objectify women, sexualize children to sell products. We have advocated for things like age verification and other political policy changes. And then the part that I spend most of my time doing is the education. So working in schools and communities to educate people on the harms of objectification, pornography, porn culture, as, as we call it, and to, to look at how that's shaping our views of men, women, sex, sexuality, violence, respect, consent. And so that's where I spend a lot of my time. Yeah, so some light stuff. That's right. That's right. Don't invite me to polite dinner parties. <laughs> yeah, it's not really a small talk kind of situation, but obviously it's an incredibly powerful um, thing that you guys do. Um, it, it it almost feels like where on earth to start with all this. I think possibly um, the, the the starting place, at least for us and us, Juliana and I having this conversation is uh, in Adventist Record, our sister magazine, we ran an, uh, an article on porn uh, a little while ago. In fact, we did an entire issue on, on porn. Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that particular issue, Juliana? Uh, It was uh, an issue mostly focused on that topic. We had an editorial talking about it and the need to address it in the Christian circles. Uh, We had um, uh, an account from someone who has been struggling and hasn't overcome it yet. Mm -hmm. Um, It was an anonymous um, article. He was talking about his struggles and yeah, how it is actually very, very present in Christian circles. Um, And we also had one other article about a young lady talking about the struggles of dating in this age where so many people are addicted to pornography. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We felt that it was really important to talk about this issue because it's often just swept under the rug. And I'm sure you have so much to say on that particular topic, Daniel. Uh, In Science Magazine, in the August issue, we also ran an article on porn called um, Four Porn Myths or Busting Four Porn Myths that um, our editor, Jared, put together. And so I think this is kind of the moment, at least for us, where we really felt that it was time for us as a church, as a Seventh-day Adventist church, to talk about this, at least 
in our space, in the small sphere of influence we have. And I actually have to say, a lot of it has to do with uh, your work and Collective Shout, because I was at a uh, set of meetings that you were a speaker at earlier this year at Avondale University, um, where you uh, shared quite powerfully about some of your experiences in this area. So uh, I know that you've been to a number of churches and um, primarily working in schools. Do you want to give us maybe a little bit of uh, personal background for you? How is this personal for you particularly? Sure. Well, thank you. And it's a it's a privilege to share within your own communities. I've, I've loved the warmth and welcome from the Seventh-day Adventist communities to come and share in different contexts and to again speak today because it's just something that affects everybody. And I admire the courage of any organization and any institution, whether it be a school, a community, a sports club, a corporation that we've engaged with or, or, a, or a faith community who says, hey, this is affecting uh, people and this is hurting people. It's hurting relationships relationships and we want to do something about it. So I commend you guys and, and thank you for being brave and hopeful and, and inviting me into this space. Not everyone wants to do that, uh, but I, I, I want to honor that. Uh, it's not a small thing. And I, 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 on that note, recognize, yeah, the importance. I do this work in part because of my own story of being exposed to pornography at 11 years of age and having that shape my ideas about all those really significant topics we listed before because it acts as an educator, it acts as a sex educator, but it teaches us about so many very significant things that impact our lives. And so it's been something that I now am so privileged to be able to speak about and share with and, and to talk about that with, with so many people, but within the school's context. And that came about through meeting my colleague Melinda uh, through Collective Shout probably nine or 10 years ago. And when I listened to her give a lecture, I thought this is such a prescient analysis of, of what is actually going on culturally. It's just making sense of so much of what harms men, harms women, and how it isn't leading us to have healthy, fulfilling, loving relationships and to care for one another. Uh, it is dehumanizing. Uh, that is the epitome of objectification is ultimately it would dehumanize one another. And I think this is what this medium does. And because of how it affects our brains, which I'm happy to speak to, mm. uh, it is very powerful in doing so in terms of how it shape, shapes beliefs and attitudes. And so my background is I'm a former health professional and then I did postgraduate studies at the University of Sydney in media and PR, very fascinated in propaganda. I've worked in both politics and health and behavior change, which is all propaganda is. <laughs> at the end of the day, it's, it's behavior change, just to what end? And so we can either try and shape people's attitudes and therefore behavior in a healthy way, uh, in a way that minimizes harm or in harmful ways. And, and I would argue, and I'm certainly not the first person, the second wave feminists very much did is, is that pornography is the most potent form of propaganda that we have served up to civilization. Wow. Could, could you unpack that a little bit? Because that's a bold statement. Yeah, well... When you look at the fact that if we can argue that advertising will cause us to go and buy a hamburger or buy a new pair of shoes, and we're not consuming that in a state of arousal conditioned by other factors uh, with regards to masturbation and orgasm, well, that's usually how people are consuming pornography. It's awakening our sexual drives and our sexual appetites, which puts our brain in a, in a kind of state that is most susceptible for having beliefs and attitudes shaped if you know anything about kind of arousal pathways and, and how that actually conditions us to then crave that and to seek that. And so if, yeah, all mixed media can shape 
beliefs, well, then pornography does that on steroids, given the state of uh, mind that we're in when we're consuming it. And, and given what it is teaching us, like it's not just saying go out and buy this burger or go and buy this product, it's, it's saying something about the very nature of how we experience our humanity and, and that of other people. Yeah, wow. Um, when we think about the culture that we live in, I mean, I think intuitively we all accept that we live in a sex-inundated culture. It's everywhere, it's on our billboards and it's in our phones and it's in everywhere in between. When you, when you look at, <laughs> I love how you're talking about propaganda because that's, that's, yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way, but you're right. When you think about the messages that um, sex and pornography are teaching us and the things that, the, the kind of culture that it's shaping us into becoming, what is that image that potentially terrifying, scary image that you think of when you think of the way that sex and porn is shaping us as, as a culture. Like, I want to drill down on the individual, mm. but what's the big picture on this that we should be concerned about? One of my mentors and friends, Professor Robert Jensen, says pornography is what the end of the world looks like. And the more that I do this walk, work, the more that I'm sympathetic to that view in the sense that what it is doing is stripping us of our humanity and our ability to see other people as humans. If every single scenario, injustice, vulnerability can be sexualized and pornified, what does that say about us? And I'm not going to give some of the examples, but let's just say think the most extreme human rights violations that we can imagine in human history and currently now in terms of Ukraine war and other things all become pornified, all become someone's uh, erotic fantasy that leads to degradation and, and sexualizing things that we should never, ever, ever dare to reduce to sex objects, and yet we have. And, and that's what pornography does. I mean, during the beginning of the Ukrainian war, and I'll just give this one recent example, the most trending things on porn tube sites were Ukrainian girls. Uh. You know, yeah. people were looking for, for human flesh, and I hate to even say that because that's not what it is. This is a person with dignity that we owe duties and respect and care and love to. And yet that's what was, that's what was trending. And we see this routinely that some of the most callous, degrading things are now the most popularly consumed things on the internet uh, from, from extreme violence, but then extreme sexual violence, that people are looking for this content. And so it doesn't augur well if we do acknowledge that all things shape beliefs and attitudes. And now every single government report in Australia and the UK recognises pornography as a driver of violence and a driver of violence in terms of sexual violence against women and children. And so we've seen now mainstream media reporting on this. The Australian Institute of Family Studies was the first major report in Australia that put this on the map in 2017. Since then, we've had Our Watch, which is the peak body to address violence against women and children, have also reported this in 2020, and even the recent National Plan to Address Violence Against Women in end of last year in December also recognises pornography as a driver of violence. So if at the same time that pornography has, in a sense, become more mainstream in terms of ideas and behaviours and sexual language, uh, has become more mainstream, it's also become more racist, more sexist, more violent, more degrading. And that's something that our culture hasn't yet reckoned with. We, we haven't yet looked into that part of the mirror of ourselves and said, hang on a second, we pride ourselves in becoming a more enlightened, progressive, equal, caring society, supposedly, and yet this content that has become more ubiquitous has also become more extreme, more degrading, and more depraved. 
How do we reconcile that with how we like to see ourselves in, in especially within the, the Western world? Mm. I find it, uh, yeah, something that I like to put out as just a consideration for us all to think about how, how is that so? And what are the ramifications of that? And, and we're seeing that every day, uh, we, we hear more stories of sexual harassment, sexual assault at schools, let alone what's happening uh, in, in private homes. Uh, we see this stuff uh, spilling out into public spaces with young people and at younger and younger ages. And that for me is what I get concerned about because I see this loss of empathy and the research is clear that the combination of social media, sexualized media has a very serious and negative impact on people's capacity for empathy. And if we lose empathy, like what do we have? Like that's just, a more modern way of saying compassion, which is mm. to suffer with someone, to enter into the suffering of another. And if we lose that, where to? Mm. Where to? And I would suggest barbarism. Like that's, 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 that's the descent, right? And a chap who wrote for Collective Shout anonymously, he, he wrote about his descent into hell consuming pornography and where it led him. And, and most people that I think step back and look at this for what it is, recognizes that. And to, to quote R Professor Jensen again, he says, most men have never really seen pornography. And what does he mean by that? Because 90% of Australian men have been exposed to pornography, 20% consume every day and 40 to 60% every week. So he's not clearly talking about who's watched it, but what he's saying when he says, most men have never really seen pornography is you haven't stepped back and looked at this for what it is. Mm. To look at the realities here of what is actually happening to this person on screen and what that says about me and what that says about our society. Is there such a, such a thing as ethical pornography? It's a, it's a term that the industry loves to use to distract from the fact that what they constitute as unethical, like, because then are you saying that 99% of it is unethical because what's claimed to be ethical makes up less than 1% of this industry. So are you suggesting, therefore, the rest of it is unethical? And let's sit with that. Let's not use that as a smokescreen. So you're therefore suggesting most pornography is unethical. And by what standards? Well, it's violent, it's degrading, it's whatever conditions they talk about, potentially underage, given how many millions of videos have had to be taken offline because it was sexual assault and, and of children and crime scenes. So let's deal with the fact that we're therefore meaning that most of this is unethical by their own standards. But if we were to then engage and humor them with such an absurd claim that pornography could ever be ethical, I've always asked for a definition and none is ever forthcoming. Like, give me a framework then. What would, what would make it ethical? And there's not some hard, fast definition. And then you would then ask to say, well, can you show it to me? Because people say, oh, you know, that ethical porn. And it's like, well, can you, can you show that to me? Does it even exist? Is it, is it even possible to be created? And I would say no for, for several reasons. And we have to look at the harms to the performers themselves, whether they recognize or experience them to be harmed in and of that moment, because most of them don't recognize harms until they leave the industry. Uh, but that's a, that's a whole conversation. We have to look at harms to the consumer, which is easily provable because all of those government reports talk about the fact that it harms the actual consumer from things from loneliness to body image dissatisfaction to sexual dysfunction, and then 
to their relationships, which is the next third category. How is it impacting their relationships, which is also them themselves? And so how can you consume this given that it leads to relational dissatisfaction? How can you consume it and say it's ethical if it does lead to, therefore, you not being able to perform and have a healthy uh, relationship or sexual relationship with the person that you are committed to? And then fourthly, what are, the, what are the consequences broadly for society through the normalization of pornography and its harms? And then fifthly, the drive for demand for things like human trafficking, which is not a bug, but a feature of the porn industry, given the vulnerabilities of people that enter into it. Like most people that enter in have been exposed or been involved before they're 18. There are so many layers of vulnerabilities. And when you look at childhood sexual abuse, Professor Max Waltman's book, Pornography, The Politics of Legal, uh, of Legal Challenges, he, he looks at what were the vulnerabilities of a lot of the people that entered into pornography. And, and it's, it's harrowing stuff. These are very vulnerable, very vulnerable people. Uh, it's, and so we have to reckon with that first. And so if we were to look at all those categories, it's pretty hard to therefore say that this is not doing any harm. So I would say the onus would be on the person making that claim to define mm. it, prove it exists, and then prove that it's not doing any harm mm. to any one of those categories. And so, yeah, it's a case-close thing. And for me, it's just such a distraction that the industry uses to not actually reckon with the harms being actually done that are demonstrative across the board, irrespective of political persuasion, recognising the harms of pornography. Without getting into the... Uh, I guess, harrowing specifics too, too much. I did want to highlight what you would just touched on as far as the entry point that especially girls have yeah. into the industry and the exploitation that goes on there. Mm. Um, I think a lot of people kind of understand that a little bit, but I also think that most people don't really consider that too, too much. Um, would you be able to just give us a broad overview of the practices initiated by porn directors, producers, sure. production companies to get girls in and what that is actually, what's that experience like for them? Sure. So Professor Waltman looks at the vulnerabilities of especially these women, but it's the same of gay men and, and any other kind of pornography in terms of how, how vulnerable a lot of the people are that enter in. So for heterosexual women who've entered into the industry, 50% of them were either at or below the poverty line the year before they entered into the industry. They have 70 to 80% of them have post-traumatic stress disorder, higher than returning veterans. Uh, most of them were experiences of childhood sexual abuse, have drug and alcohol addictions as well. So we have serious layers of disadvantage there and vulnerabilities. And so quite often they're approached in times of vulnerability. And I have met enough and spoken to and listened to enough stories of these women who said, yeah, they were being approached in very, very vulnerable times, usually using this lover boy method, which is this whole very nice, very sweet to you to get you on side, like kind of the love bombing thing, if we've ever heard about that in dysfunctional toxic relationships, that same thing, buying you gifts, being very sweet to you, going above and beyond. And so you flutter with all hormones that make you attached to this person, which is the whole idea of love bombing. 
And it's the same with how pimps and johns and traffic, like all that is used against these women to make them feel that they're safe and can trust this person who's ultimately looking to exploit mm -hmm. them. So they don't come off as monstrous in the first meeting. It's usually some sort of charm device to, to woo this person to get them to do what they want or then tell them that they owe them and now need to do them favours to, to recompensate the money. And so a lot of these girls are very vulnerable. They sign contracts and they kind of say what they are and aren't prepared to do, but that's not what goes on on a set. Even women who are still in the industry have, you know, tweeted afterwards saying that I was pretty much told that I wouldn't get paid and I would be blacklisted and not be able to get any more work if I didn't kind of tell the camera that it was fine and I agreed to everything that happened. So even if someone does, you know, tell you that they consented to everything, you don't know if they've got a gun in the room. You don't know if they're under the influence of drugs. You don't know what kind of coercive pressures or threats to not be paid. So girls are told, like, you're not going to be paid unless you go through with all of this. You know, they're plied with drugs and alcohol to go through all these sorts of things. And so, yeah, these are, these are serious things that a lot of people don't think about. Hence, they've never really seen pornography. They're just purely approaching it from a very self-seeking, mm. pleasure-seeking way rather than thinking about, well, what is the cost to other people? Mm. Is there any regulatory bodies at all in the US? Just, just no, there's... Because there's, it feels like this is the sort of thing if you've got an industry like, you know, the film industry, the music industry, you're going to have a regulatory body that's going to ensure ethical standards are met and all that sort of stuff. And if somebody's trying to, I guess, uh, try to legitimize this as a practice and go, well, you know, we, we're going to do this the right way, it feels like the next step should be some sort of regulatory body to make sure that these standards are being upheld. I think... I think what that would do and why we would be completely against that is it would be seen to legitimize an industry sure. that we don't want to legitimize. Now, sure. of course, we want people to be as safe as possible, but then that's used as an argument to say that this can be reformed, it can be safe when we're of the opinion that it needs to be abolished altogether, yeah. that no person in good conscience could, could agree to this given the harms to all persons and parties. And so, yeah, at the end of the day, what we actually want is scrutiny to say that crimes are being committed and we, to make the argument that the very existence of pornography undermines the status of women in the world, reducing them to objects and sex objects. And that's what porn renders like us as humans. That's what it's doing. And so that's why we're actually against it is the, is the harms that it's doing both uh, interpersonally, politically, structurally, power, because it just suggests that people are just objects to be treated for, for sexual gratification. And so, yeah, we want to do everything we can to regulate that and, and out of existence. And so incrementally uh, seeking to put things in place, like age verification is what we're advocating for here in Australia, so that minors cannot be exposed to pornography, which will, again, decrease uh, the amount of viewers. It'll decrease child addiction to pornography because the average age of exposure is like 11 for boys, 13 for all kids, yeah, wow. you know? And so, like, they're getting lifelong customers hooked at earlier and earlier ages with no education campaigns. So that's one barrier to prevent a lot of consumption, a lot of harm, a lot of young people being set up for compulsive consumption. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you were talking about your experience of um, seeing porn for the first time at 11 and sharing some 
um, information on the age that children are exposed to pornography. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, we have talked about it in a recent article in Record as well. And it is very frightening to see that they're starting at, at such a young age. Um, we had some data in the, in the article saying that by 14, 94% of children will have seen porn. And that is very troublesome for parents who, you know, I'm not a parent yet, but when I see this, I think about the day that maybe I'll become a parent and I think about my children. What would you say is something that parents can do to prevent their children from, you know, even though they will come across pornography, how can they, like, not become addicted? Yeah, I'd love to say that we could stop it, but I think it's just a matter of when, not if. And it's about making sure that we've had enough healthy, non-fear-based, non-shame-based conversations, that there are harmful things that you may be exposed to online. If you see them, you're not bad, wrong, you're not in trouble, you're not wrong or evil because you've been exposed to pornography. Usually it's because someone else has shown them or a pop-up. Like, how is that the child's fault? And that's what I say to young people routinely. They're not in trouble and the parents need to know that. And, and therefore, we need to make it normalize that they can come and speak to mom and dad rather than get stuck consuming something in silence, in the dark, that they feel that they're in trouble for or that mom and dad will react to this. And so we just got to normalize having the conversations so that if and when that does happen, that we can minimize the harm or hopefully earlier intervene on it all. And so, yeah, I think a big message to all people is like, you're not bad or wrong if you've been exposed or consuming pornography. Like, you You've been preyed on by this billion dollar industry. Like for example, in my workshops, like I ask the boys, like from year five upwards, how many of you have had sex bots drop inappropriate content into your Snapchat, TikTok gaming feeds? Year six boys, 50 to 60% of them have had this happen. By year nine and 10, it's 100%, 95 to 100%. And so they're not searching for it. They're just going online and it'll find them. And it doesn't matter how wonderful a parent you are, it's not a poor reflection of your parenting, it's not a reflection of your child. It's a reflection that, as I've said routinely, we as a society have put the interests of the billion dollar porn industry ahead of the well-being and rights of children. Mm-hmm. That's what we have all permitted and allowed because we've done nothing to put barriers in place and to educate and to equip parents and educators and caregivers to help children navigate really difficult times. It's not the kid's fault. It's not their fault, and nor is it the parents' fault. And there's too much put on parents. So the porn industry wants to just say, well, parents should just monitor it at home, like they should put blockers in. But the reality is porn pops up everywhere. It's an unfair fight. One parent, one single mum, one single dad, or even a married couple, even a good, healthy community up against this $100 billion industry, it's not a fair fight. Mm. So we actually need help as a society to, to do all we can to put the well-being of children first. Speaking of children, I I feel like this is low-hanging fruit, but we're going through a period in time where masculinity is becoming more and more examined, Mm -hmm. renegotiated, questioned. Mm -hmm. And in the void of good masculine figures are others like, again, the low-hanging fruit is guys like Andrew Tate. Guys like him. And they have a message that Though many of us, most of us, I'd say, look at it and go, what a load of rubbish, is nonetheless resonating with some young boys for, well, not some, I should not minimise, for a lot of young boys for whatever reason. Yep. What are your thoughts on that in this 
in this whole conversation, it seems like this is very much a uh, not a not a, a side issue, but this is a related issue. It, absolutely, I stay up at night wondering if we have teenage boys plus a time of Andrew Tate and worse and pornography. What is the outcome of that going to be? So when people lament that not we're not producing enough good boys or boys aren't acting well, blah blah blah, I'm like, are you are you surprised? Like I'm more shocked when I see a decent, courageous, respectful young man because they are having to push against so many toxic forces that undermine their efforts and perhaps their parents' and families' efforts to be good, decent, respectful, kind, empathetic young men. Because I can tell you now, working with tens of thousands of boys across this country, those decent, sweet boys get absolutely hammered, ridiculed, mocked, humiliated routinely for just daring to be half decent. So we've made it pretty darn hard for them. And then they have to fight back against the porn industry and then people like Andrew Tate giving mixed messages about what it is to be a man and with really dangerous um, ideas because it's mixed in with some sensible things that you can't disagree with. If You, you know, yeah. if Andrew Tate tells you to drink water you know, or, or work <laughs> out or go to sleep, like, yeah, yeah. great. <laughs> can't argue with that, you know, and... I could spend all day talking about some of the really harmful things that he's done and how he's never acknowledged that harm and that he's profited from exploiting women and exploiting men in that process to make his money. But boys are clearly looking for some figure. And they have in, in every generation and in different subcultures, we've put different people on pedestals and we've looked to them. And it says something. And we have to sit with that because boys are clearly looking for, for something in this culture. And whether it's right or wrong, they feel overlooked. They feel a sense of, well, we've been missed out. We've been left out. And I get uh, I get that in some ways. I'm not saying I necessarily agree with it. I'm saying from their perspective that they feel like they just hear how they're terrible, not how they could be great and what they could do and how they could sh show up in the world as their best selves with their talents, gifts, abilities, forming healthy relationships to themselves, to, to one another uh, and into the future. And I don't think we've given them an aspiring vision worth fighting for. And so in the end, someone else will fill that void. And so a lot of boys feel disenfranchised. And I get it. There's a lot of older men who have maybe been successful and benefited from toxic power relations in society and benefited from things like uh, how the world was structured once upon a time in terms of women's place and men's place and men's access at the table. But that's not the case for a 15-year-old boy right now. No. Like, he's not benefiting from that old man's successes and how he's experienced the world, which was far more stacked in that older man's favour for him to succeed as a man in the world. The world's changed, and, and, and for good reasons, and I'm grateful that it has. But these boys, therefore, feel like, well, hang on a second, we get blamed for things, and whether that's true or not, that's how they feel. So I, mm. I have to clear the... I have to do so much, like, clear the cultural baggage when I enter into a room with young men because they think I'm here to beat up on them, to hate on them for being boys. They think it's this or that, and I have to, like, try and clear the air to talk about what I'm here to do is critique the culture that I think is limiting you guys from being your best, healthier selves, but champion you as individual young men, as friends, to go out and do all you can to show up in a healthier way as young men. I, I'm wondering what that what that image looks like because you know what you said is so true. 
young men who don't have a leader, who want purpose, meaning to make a difference in the world particularly, they will look to often a strong man, somebody who's successful, somebody who's done something of worth and they'll want to be like that person, whether it's you know, a Jordan Peterson type or a Donald Trump or an Andrew Tate. Not that they all belong in the same category, I'm but they you. belong in similar, separate categories. Mm -hmm. So what is that image? Like I'm thinking of, of of the teenage boys and I'm thinking of the young, you know, 21-year-olds. They see strength. They see someone who can hold their own. And rightly or wrongly, how much ego you think those particular men have, um, two more than the other one. Yeah. Uh, and I'll let you guys playing <laughs> along at home work out who I'm talking about there. But they see that success, that defiance, that kind of swagger, and they find it attractive. And let's be honest, confidence is attractive in anyone, but it has to be true confidence, not narcissism, not this kind of obnoxiousness. But when you see someone grounded in themselves, and that doesn't mean that they're loud and, and obnoxious, it just means that they have this, this groundedness in who they are. And I think we, we mistake that obnoxious kind of ego with true confidence, that this real sense of, I, I'm okay with who I am, therefore I can be meek. Which is, a, which is a virtue, which is something I love to bring up always when we're talking about masculinity and, and, and being healthy is like, can you allow other people to succeed? Can you create space for other people wow. at the table? Do you use your gifts, your talents, your strengths to make the world a better place for other people or is it self-centered? And so I think there's elements that they're attracted to, but it's not the full end of what those gifts and talents are. Just like all of us sitting here and those listening, we all have gifts and talents, but they're not just to serve ourselves. Mm. Far from it, far from it. And so I think there, there's the missing end of like, well, why do I have what I'm given? Whatever sphere of influence, whatever talents, whatever strengths I have, well, they're not just purely for me. They're actually to make the world a better place and hopefully to serve others. And, and I think that's the missing part of the conversation when we're trying to drum up an inspiring vision for these young men. And so they see the success, they see the defiance, and they find that attractive uh, for dysfunctional reasons because I think what we've still shaped in terms of masculinity in our culture is this uh, stoic, unfeeling, calloused kind of ruthless vision of what it is to be a man. And, and this is what comes up in my workshops with boys to make the point, is they tell me the horrific things that have been joked about. They tell me, like, I'm, I'm talking awful, awful stuff. And it's everywhere in all schools, just so people know I'm not making exceptions, it's everywhere. And they tell me the way that goodness and decency is shamed out of boys. They tell me that that is normalized. And so that's what's going on in their formative experience. And they then tell me that things like being loving is seen as weak. So if that is the backdrop, when we unpack what is it to be a good man and the word love rarely, like 99% of the time, never ever comes up. And the younger boys will tell me because the older boys are too cool. But the younger boys, when I ask them, boys, I know some of you wanted to say that word, but, but why didn't you? And they say, because it was seen as weak. What a tragedy that the most powerful force, this phenomenon, love, that has changed the world in every way that you look at it, has led men and women to do extraordinary feats, to sacrifice everything, to create, to build, to dare, to adventure, to imagine, you know, is seen as weak. I mean, how absurd, and that's, that's what crazy. I mean. So Tate fills a void that if we as a culture had a healthier understanding of what it is to be a man, we would readily reject that. Mm -hmm. 
Do you know what I mean? Because if if Mm. we upheld things Mm. like love and meekness and actual courage that doesn't look like football courage, but like I'm going to show up authentically for the sake of others' courage and be an upstander and make the world a safer place. Like if we actually valued these virtues, Mm. I think we'd more readily look at people who don't live up to that and reject it. I read, I think it was an editorial by... um, one of the the editor of Christianity Today recently, who was sharing that uh, evangelical pastors in America are starting to see this phenomenon in the church where their congregants are coming up to them and saying things like, um, the teachings of Jesus as you've been preaching them, I don't like that. It's weak because they're they're coming into this culture or they're, they're, they're immersed in this culture of showmanship, of strong man, yep. of, of all this sort of stuff, uh, in extreme polarization, and now even Christians. Which is so fascinating, because <sighs> do you know who said that? Nietzsche, the ultimate atheist yeah. philosopher, that's what he rejected about Christianity. Not that it was moral, it was that it was weak. Wow. And hence he talked about the ubermensch, which yeah. is the strong man. Yeah. And so he saw it as weak because in Christian tradition, irrespective of how people understand it, to, to faithfully represent it, I think it's, you know, my best account would be that it's about love yeah. and humility and meekness and, and kindness. And so, yeah, if you're in a culture that prizes the opposite of that and dominance and control, uh, yeah, that's going to look mm. that's going to look weak. It's so that's like, fascinating. I, I had no idea yeah. about that, but it doesn't surprise me with what I'm seeing and what's just being generally valued. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It's it's almost like we're going back to the Roman Empire in a way. Sure. Which is crazy. Yeah. Anything to? Uh, yeah. In talking about toxic masculinity, um, I have a lot of single friends who struggle in the dating world. Yeah. Because, you know, pornography is such a big issue and it's making uh, dating violence a um, mm-hmm. more frequent thing today. Um, and is there any hope for people that are looking for, you know, a loving relationship these days? Because apparently there, what, 76% of young Christian adults have actively searched for porn. And so that is an issue present also in Christian circles, just as much as in the in, outside of the church. Yeah, thank you for acknowledging that. A couple of things. Toxic masculinity, I don't always use that expression. I know what it means, but it can get some people offside, especially young men who think that means you think that all oh, maleness is bad or, or it's bad to be a man. Um, so I usually talk about har- harmful stereotypes or mm-hmm. unhealthy stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Just I wanted to touch on that because I, I want to invite people into the conversation and, and there is a lot of culture wars baggage on so much of this mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, but to your point about dating, yeah, it's fraught. I have a lot of um, single female friends and sometimes they call me and ask me, like, I'm on date two, Dan, or I'm on date three, and <laughs> when do I got to ask the porn question? And, and we kind of troubleshoot that and work through it. And I think it's a really important conversation to have. Uh, I was speaking uh, with some educators recently who do premarital prep, and I was talking about I think we need to ask better quality questions when it comes to understanding this, not just do you consume or have you consumed, but what have you learned from pornography? Hmm. What has it taught you? Because if you can't articulate that, in my mind, you, 
you probably don't have the emotional awareness that's worthy of uniting your life to someone else's and <laughs> getting married. Uh, because it shows your capacity for self-reflection, both emotionally, intellectually, to be aware of your own own state of mind. Uh, and then equally important is, okay, you've identified how it's harmed you. Can you tell me what you've done to adopt a healthier vision of sexuality, of bodies, of intimacy, mm. of love? What have you done? Mm. What does that look like for you? What's the journey you've gone on? Because I've had to unlearn a lot of unhealthy things from pornography mm -hmm. and still on the journey. And as I said, everybody, I'm not some angel on a cloud talking to you guys. I'm on the journey too. Mm -hmm. I'm still managing myself in a hyper-sexualized world when I've been harmed by porn. Mm -hmm. And also the people I love and care about have either directly or indirectly too. So what am I doing to unlearn, as Dr. Andrew Bowman talks about, that pornographic style of relating? And that's not just sexually, that can even just be in how you see power, how you see uh, roles, how you see love, how you see like even just gentle touch in a platonic sense to your male friends and your female friends. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important to not just be like, have you consumed? Because that doesn't tell us a lot of quality information in my mind. It's what has it taught you and what have you had to unlearn and what are you now learning? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that for me is important. And so for anyone thinking about dating, please have those conversations. And I think the beauty is that like, that is what excites me. That's, that's what we need to be working towards because the reality is no one is fully healthy. And we know that psychologically, we know that physically, and we also know that sexually. We are all on a journey. And so I think it's more just trying to find someone who is at least honest and transparent about theirs and that you have similar shared goals on where you're heading. So this morning I spoke with a man whose pornography use escalated to him uh, purchasing women in the sex industry. Uh, and so he's turned his life around um, and he's now on a journey. And he's also recognized that I need to sit out dating for some time as I go on my own journey of healing. I'd like to, on that, in that vein, end on a hopeful note, if possible. Of course. Um, let's talk about the recovery process. Right. right? Yeah. Um, what does that look like? I know that it's probably very different for different people, yep. but I, uh, the reason I ask is because I think for a lot of particularly young men, being free, maybe maybe I'm not using the right terminology, so please it's correct all good. me. It, being free, being released, not being under the burden of porn just seems like an unattainable goal. Yeah, yeah. Talk to that. Maybe because in this cultural context, yeah, where porn is everywhere and we've so normalized it, but everything's unattainable until you do it. <laughs> I know hundreds, if not thousands of men who have quit pornography from all different walks of life. And I routinely connect with them, I chat with them, and everyone's got a different story. Some people quit cold turkey, some people it was a process, some people needed therapy. I would say, and I'm happy to share it with you guys, is I have a how to quit kind of card and, awesome. and just some general principles. There's no silver bullet. I would just say like, we need to take it seriously. So this guy came up to me, a really good guy at a conference, and he said, oh, look, I've done everything. And I asked him the first two questions. I said, have you seen a therapist? And have you gone to a sex addiction fellowship? And he said, no, I would not. And I said, well, you clearly haven't done everything. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, yeah. you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna give up hope, at least like do everything Just you can. Try as much as but possible. But clearly you haven't even, for yeah. me, like, you know, hadn't even put accountability in place. And like, are you journeying with other men on this, you know? Yeah. And I'm like, man, that you that's hopeful then. Yeah. 
You know, there's the actual things you can do. Mm. And so I would just say, like, let's take this seriously. This is poisonous to every part of who you are as a human creature mm. and to your relationship. So let's take it that seriously. Mm. It is undermining your ability to be healthy, to express yourself and to express love, to form intimate, safe connections with people platonically and obviously romantically and sexually. Mm. It'll rob from everything that you hold significant or perhaps sacred in this life. And so I think... Like, let's, let's recognize it. Let's be real about what it's robbing us. And then let's be real about how good would it feel to overcome this? How good would it feel if this was not something that I continue to have to cope and soothe with? Mm-hmm. And that for me is drumming up that vision. And then it's not just about like, I just want to be post-porn or anti-porn or quit porn. It's, it's actually coming with a vision of your life that's worth aspiring to and fighting for. And that for me is part of the goal and then taking a stock take on like, what do I need to put in place so that I can go and do the things that make me come alive, that recognize my triggers, that recognize when I'm most tempted to minimize that because there's no superheroes. You can't do it alone. You need friends and you may need serious support. I know a lovely man who I would have said was one of the best guys I know who was struggling and he brought this into his his dating, into his engagement, into his marriage. And it wasn't until his wife was screaming at him in the kitchen, crying on the floor because of how much it had robbed them. And that was when he was like, I need to do something about this. And for me, I just want to say to people, don't wait for it to get that bad. Don't wait for it to get that bad. Like recognize the harms. Don't, don't kid yourself. The good news is in, in that moment, he finally recognized the harms and he's now been sober for three years. Amazing. And they've now welcomed a child into the world. Oh, and I love that story. Yeah. But how did he get there? Well, he realized he needed to do something serious, joined a sex addiction fellowship, went to a therapist and put accountability in place. Mm. And I love that. And like, we need more of that and we just need to normalize it and we need to help people on that journey mm. and, and, and to let them know, hey, it is possible. And so, yeah, happy to share that um, yeah, with you guys please. more formally. But yeah, there are lots of people and the culture is shifting. The culture is shifting massively on this. Like more and more people, even people that used to think porn was okay, recognize it's harmful now. We're seeing more celebrities, athletes, fitness coaches, mm-hmm. just everyday people saying this is harmful because everyone's got a story. Everywhere yeah. I go, people tell me stories, whether them or someone they know. And so people are recognizing the harms and more people are recognizing that this, this is just not helping me be my best self. Yeah. This is not bringing me towards a life that I am happy with, that I feel healthy about, that I feel good about. And so, yeah, I think that culture is shifting, which I think is going to make it easier to just normalize talking about it and banding with others to say, like, we want something more for our lives, which is why we're doing this. We're very pro-sex and healthy relationships and just very anti-porn and its harms and destructiveness. Anything from you? Cool. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to to cap this off, Daniel. I really appreciate the time you've been able to spend with us, man. Um, if people want to find out more about Collective Shout and your great, work, where great. are they going to go? Great. Head to collectiveshout.org. Head to Collective Shout uh, Instagram page. You can find me at, at Last of the Romans uh, on Instagram. Uh, where some of these things I've already shared about, you can find some more of my reflections. But thank you for the conversation. And I just want to, again, thank you guys for being brave, courageous. Like 
this is done from a place of hope. Like if we didn't care about people, if we didn't care about love and faithfulness and people being healthy, we wouldn't speak about these things. But I remind people the reason we actually talk about this is because we care for people, we love people, and we want them to thrive. We want them to flourish in themselves and in their relationships. And so thank you for this and thank you for letting the the light in on this. Uh, So thank you both. Awesome, awesome. No, absolute pleasure. Um, and if you want to find out more, you can head over to signsofthetimes.org.au to read the article that we read that we wrote for the August issue. Um, apart from that, thank you, Daniel. We'll put all the show note, all the stuff in the show notes, so you can head to Collective Shout to find out all more resources. And we'll see you next time. Thank you, Juliana. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Juliana and Jesse. Thank you both. This episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Signs of the Times magazine. A print subscription is $28 a year, or just $14 for a digital subscription. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. This is an Adventist Media Podcast.